welcome to the Alternative to Rehab podcast with your host, Dave Cooper. So here we are in the third in this series on my uh, upcoming book. It's session three and this one is uh, self-management through inner discipling. And having done the intro and the first section, which is uh, No Substitute for Growth, we're now looking at the main thesis of the book, the main idea in the book, which is the idea that we can manage ourselves using the same approach that Jesus did with the disciples. So I'm going to do it the same way. Uh, I'm going to read, first of all, from a, a section of the book, and then I'm going to speak to some of the ideas that are more at length and give you a good grounding as to how I arrived at these ideas and, and, and what is the biblical idea behind them. So I start out with a quote that I use a lot uh, from the Bible. It's Genesis 1.26, uh, and you can look this up for yourself. Again, your version may say something very slightly different to mine, uh, but the idea will be the same. So Genesis 1.26, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our own image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. You know, we must go right back to the beginning of the Bible to see how God created us, how we are made to be like him, and how we are the pinnacle of his creation. It should not surprise us as Christians that science is slowly catching up with the Bible. There may be no better example of this than the one this whole book is based upon, namely, how we should think about ourselves. The Bible taught us thousands of years ago, and neuroscience is only in the last few decades proving this view to be true. You may have thought of yourself as ill or of having evil spirits because you sometimes do things you said you wouldn't do, or because you sometimes have voices in your head or bad thoughts. Now the Bible promises us that we will struggle with these things, and neuroscience has now shown that these things are a normal part of life. The medical model, which I will describe shortly, defines you as one thing. But the Bible always defines you as more complex, as we just read in Genesis 1.26. This is the way God created you, and any view that does not include this more complex idea will, at best, fall short. At worst, it will produce a horrible inner conflict. Your commitment to personal growth and development is the most effective thing when you view yourself as God created you, a complex human being. You may have tried very hard to make changes in your life and failed. You will be surprised at how much the way you view and think about yourself caused these failures. The medical model has trained us to think of ourselves in a way that produces conflict and does not take account of the complex nature of the human condition. So in this section, I'm going to start by examining one of the most famous parables in the Bible, 
This will help you to see the evidence of how the Bible asks us to view and understand ourselves as human beings. And by way of contrast, I will also include the way the medical model works, how it differs from the biblical view, and the consequences we face by using it. So this next section is called The Prodigal Son, Everything You Need to Know. And I start out with a quote from Luke 15, verse 11, and he said, there was a man who had two sons. That's Jesus starting to tell us the, the story of the prodigal. I often say at my workshops that everything we need to know about addiction, recovery, growth, and family dysfunction is in Luke 15, verses 11 to 32, the story of the prodigal. It still amazes me, although it shouldn't, that neuroscience is only now catching up with some of the ideas that Jesus was telling us about 2,000 years ago. I will be drawing on ideas from this portion of scripture extensively in this book, so it's important to familiarise yourself with it. Here are the important things that we will be learning from this parable. The family pattern of dysfunction. Addiction and reverse addiction. The attraction of the dead world. The main function of the rock bottom. Parts and the adult presence. Now I'm going to introduce them all uh, one at a time. Firstly in the biblical context and after that I'll go over them again from a therapeutic angle. This will give you a good grounding when these things come up later as I look at them in more detail and they become part of your practice. So the first one we look at is the family pattern of, distinct, of uh, dysfunction. And this comes from verse 11, there was a man who had two sons. The story starts with a family structure, which tells us that the main context of this story is going to be relationship. More importantly, it describes the structure of the dysfunctional family and the way that addiction and reverse addiction are formed. In this case, in the two brothers. The younger one being an example of an addictive pattern, whilst the older one is an example of the reverse addiction pattern. Dysfunction in the world creates the two extremes depicted through the two sons' attitudes. We go now to verse 12. The younger one said to the father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Now this verse speaks to me about isolation, which is a big feature of uh, addiction, by the way. Ask yourself this, does it seem like this was an idea the younger son had been discussing with anyone? You know, this idea of, I want my money now. I would say not. So by the second verse, Jesus is already describing someone who has one foot in the dead world. He's isolated. In other words, he's been thinking about these things in his own head for a long time, but he's not really spoken about them. Anyone in their right mind would have talked him out of this. I will talk about isolation more later and the way that neuroscience is telling us that isolation is even worse than we thought it was. For now, we can just accept that at best, this was something his friends were wrongly agreeing with. Of course, we can also see the selfish nature which goes along with the isolated thinking. If there is only you in your thoughts, 
then there's really no one else to consider. I suspect that this whole attitude was the result of isolated thinking. Anyway, he got his wish, which also speaks to the patient relationship God has with his children. Towards the end of the story, we hear more about the other son, and this helps us recognise the pattern more clearly from the opposite perspective. Verse 25 says, uh, Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants to him and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Now it's at that point that we meet the older brother. As soon as he finds out what has happened, his reaction is anger. Now this was not just a small matter of anger. <clears throat> this was full on rebellion. The father actually had to come out to him. It was so bad that we never actually hear how this was resolved or if it ever was. Notice the contrast in attitudes. Whereas the selfish escape in the younger brother included demanding his share of the inheritance, the selfless escape in the older brother attempts to manipulate things out of the father. He didn't receive because he didn't ask, James 4.2. And he just became more resentful over the years. Now one of the major ways children react to dysfunction is by thinking that it's all their fault. It's just too threatening to believe that our caregivers are at fault uh, that comes much later. So we not only take the blame, we also take the responsibility. We feel we must do something about it. And this sense of responsibility from a young child that doesn't have the experience, knowledge or wisdom to handle the difficulty often leads to the sort of pattern Jesus is talking about in this parable. Notice the two sons' attitudes. One wants his inheritance immediately the other complains later when his work and commitment isn't acknowledged. The older brother is resentful of the younger brother and compares them both constantly, whereas we have no evidence that the younger brother ever even considers the older brother. So now we look a little bit more at uh, another section called addiction and reverse addiction. I want you to understand the pattern here. I call it the pattern of addiction and reverse addiction. If we were to distill the two brothers' attitudes down to a sentence or a mission statement, it might look something like this. The younger son, what is his philosophy? He says, everything in my life will work out if I get everything I want. Whereas the older son, his sort of mission statement is, well, everything in my life will work out if everyone else gets what they want. Now, I can't tell you how many times I've seen this pattern in families I've worked with. It's also present when there are more than two siblings. 
it's present when there's been addiction in the family history, but it's often there even when there's been no addiction present in the family history. Think of these two positions more as an extreme spectrum, and these people are on either end of it. You may not have suffered with addiction or reverse addiction, but your issues may still be on this spectrum. I quote here um, from another piece that I've written, the initial reaction to family dysfunction is always towards the reverse position. Again, some useful information there to understand. Because the medical model will have you thinking of these ideas as a diagnosis, I need to stop at this point and remind you that this is not the model we'll be using. Because we will be returning to the biblical model, I want you to think of these two differences as potentials rather than fixed diagnosable states. More like human reactions to traumatic events and dysfunction in the family. The initial reaction to family dysfunction is always towards the reverse position. This is because there is a strong feeling that something's missing and we feel responsible for solving it or providing it. Let me explain a little further. The effect of any dysfunction in the family on the children can be broadly understood as placing, or in some cases dragging, the child into the adult arena, where they have no experience or ability to help themselves, but they must survive and cannot leave. Well, what are the options? As youngsters, the idea that this is the adult's fault is way too threatening. That type of thinking comes later. So it follows that it must be our fault, or put another way, that we must be responsible for doing something about it. And it's this kind of motivation that leads us into a period of trying to make things right. We have to find a way of making things better. Now this can involve trying to parent the parent, as it's sometimes called, or trying to achieve enough to become acceptable to them. As we accept this heavy uh, responsibility, we start to become other-centered, and this starts a shift towards reverse addiction. If we reject this responsibility, we then shift towards addiction. Whichever way we go, this can be a really a terrible burden on a young child. Later in life, it produces all kinds of stress and depression, anxiety and so on. It's often around the age of 12 to 14 that we begin to look for options of how to escape from this terrible responsibility we've felt up to this point. At this age, people are individuating or becoming more like themselves. Both solutions the story represents from, form radical strategies. We either accept the burden of responsibility, uh, reverse addiction, or we avoid it by escaping into selfishness, full-on addiction. For people like you and me, selfishness often is the only answer. Addiction means escaping into a world of one and one only. Okay, next section is called The Unhealthy Relationship. And again, I quote from Luke 15, 29. This is the older brother speaking. But he answered his father, Luke, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. 
So there is, of course, another option to becoming an addict, that of staying in the reverse position and sacrificing yourself to the care of others. This is what I call the reverse addict position and can lead to a lifelong frustration. When I meet my clients or their partners, I find many of them in this position, particularly in the church. People in the addict position and the reverse addict position act like magnets of opposite poles. In other words, they become stuck to each other. How many times have I seen the couple come into therapy in these extreme positions? Of course, when they first meet, it's like a match made in heaven because they both want to look after the addict. They're both getting what they want. But once the honeymoon period wears off, it often leads to a chaotic lifestyle. But wait, I hear you say, selfless sacrifice to the care of others? Isn't that a good thing? Isn't that what we're supposed to be doing as Christians? Why is that a bad thing? Well, I understand the question. Doesn't it look good? All that giving and putting their partner first. How good did the brother look in Jesus' parable until the end of the story? It's only when the addict brother begins his recovery journey that the resentment of the older brother is exposed. Only then are his so-called good works exposed as selfish and manipulative. The father goes out to him in the field as he will not even come in to celebrate. So we must remember that there is a world of difference between the older brother's behaviour and the mature decision to offer our lives in sacrifice. People in the reverse addict position might look good, but they are just as extreme, needing just as much help, and are just as afflicted as their adult partner. The next stage is called flipping. It's often when someone recovers from an addicted or dependent lifestyle that they are reacquainted with their reverse addict past. This thing they thought they had cleverly avoided when they escaped into selfishness. This overwhelming burden of responsibility for others learned in the past returns, flipping them into old feelings and thoughts. Often they will feel that their only escape is back into acting out or drugs. I've met many people caught in this unhealthy oscillation between addiction and reverse addiction. If someone is more dependent than addicted, their, their dependence could have developed more from a sense of protection against some form of mental or emotional issue. But when they attempt to stop, as the protective layer of drugs or alcohol is removed, what it covered all those years ago is once more revealed. Understanding the likelihood of this puts you in a much better place to manage the excesses of reverse addiction. For others, I often notice a form of flipping from one extreme to another depending on the person they are relating to at the time or the situation that they're in. It's from this position that we can understand the value of thinking of these things as potentials rather than a diagnosis. This more relational view of the difficulties we face allows us to avoid this medical idea of some sort of illness, affliction or condition and helps us to begin to see potential in this recovery method. As such, it is a much better fit than the medical model as it does not start from the classic medical position, what's wrong with me? Rather, it opens up the radical possibility that we will look at later, that these things are happening because things are working well. But for now, 
back to the story. The next section is called The Attraction of the Dead World. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and thus squandered his wealth in wild living. It's easy to miss the importance of the word distant here. This is another clue that we're talking about the dead world. It is being described as being far away from the world of the father. Notice in the son's decision, he's also choosing things over people. Later in this book, you will read about the nature of triggering and parts. I believe that the younger son is in a triggered state when he makes these mistakes. You will learn that our younger parts' decisions are always about now, always naive and always radical. So let's look at his thinking in this light. He's taking his whole inheritance, not to mention how much his family has worked to provide it, and using it to feel better now. It's naive and radical. And as far as the future goes, it's a disaster. Another section here is called the main function of the rock bottom. Verses 14 and 15. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Wow. The naivety of his thinking and decision-making is now brought home by tribulation. He's now penniless and in trouble, And it is here that the nature of appearances is illuminated. He would have had lots of hangers-on when he was throwing his money about like water, but they were all gone now. This is not something I would blame them for, but notice that the son had been more comfortable with these false relationships than with the real ones. The other thing to notice here is the attitude of the father. He's not searching out his son, not trying to bail him out or rescue him, He is waiting patiently at home. Verses 17, 18, 19 and 20. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spur, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Now, it's very common for these rock-bottom experiences to be brought about by almost nothing. We might expect them to be dramatic affairs where something absolutely tragic finally convinces us to change our attitude and direction, but this is rarely the case. Big events have a tendency to harden a person's resolve and make them more set in their ways. The old saying that it is the last straw that breaks the camel's back really applies here. Take the prodigal. There was nothing dramatic about about his moment with the pigs. It was probably a normal sort of day on the farm, very much like the day before, but something was about to change forever. In Luke 15, 17, he came to his senses. Now this is a moment that took many years to create and cannot be recreated easily. It was created at a tremendous cost. And so I want you to think of your rock bottom, if you have one, as extremely valuable and important to your recovery. Not something to be avoided or saved from. You don't need protection from it. 
it needs to happen. So now we look at parts and the adult presence. In this book, we'll be using the biblical idea that we are multifaceted and have both the spirit and the flesh living within us. This will be covered in more detail later, but for now, let's look at verse 17 of Luke 15 to understand the idea of parts and how Jesus refers to this way of understanding ourselves. You know, the ESV, that's the English Standard Version, says, but when he came to himself as a description of his rock bottom. I also love the Wycliffe version, which says, and he turned again to himself and said, how many have hired men in my father's house have plenty of loaves and I perish here through hunger. Just ask yourself now, who's talking to who here? Which self is turning to which self? This is a clear description of the way that human beings are complex and multifaceted, straight from the mouth of Jesus himself. As you will learn later in this book, the adult or most grown-up part of the prodigal is turning to the flesh or child part that got him in this position in the first place. When you look at what the core self says, does it seem to you that he was surprised at what was going on? It's almost as if this part of him had been asleep until now. So verse 17 contains the classic description of a rock bottom. More than the pain and the problems which cannot be quantified, rock bottoms are more about coming to yourself or your senses and seeing things in proportion. Rock bottoms are more about seeing things in reality than they are about the size of your troubles. Notice how the son's appraisal of this situation is now crystal clear. Compare this with his earlier attitude. Doesn't it sound like two different people? There is a very good reason for this, and you will hear a lot more about it later. Notice that the only thing that wakes up this adult self is pain and suffering. Only when he got to the end of his ideas and resources did this part of him become activated. Notice also that the strategy of his adult self is to take the more difficult and challenging path. His child part just wanted what he wanted when he wanted it. Comfort and grandiosity, pleasure and lording it over people. His more adult self is willing to face the music. Verse 20 says, so he got up and went to his father. For me as a therapist working with addiction, this is one of the most fascinating parts of this whole story. Verse 20 to 24, so he got up and went to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Now it is at this point where we see the fruit of the rock bottom. At this point his relationship with his father is at its best. At this point he has the humility to admit his son, uh, his sin and is prepared to receive his punishment. 
until we are ready to face the consequences of our addicted lifestyle, of our selfish behaviour, we cannot expect to develop a full recovery. I want to draw your attention to another clear idea here. Look at everything the younger son does before verse 17, when he has his rock bottom. In other words, from verse 11 to verse 17. Now, look at everything he does following his rock bottom, which is, I think, verse 17 to verse 32. Notice that every decision he makes prior to his rock bottom is disastrous, whereas every decision he makes after his rock bottom is perfect. Does this not sound like the rock bottom is something very valuable? And yet families spend years trying to help their loved ones avoid it. More of the value of such moments later. So, what about the oldest son? Reverse addicts are filled with an overburdening sense of responsibility for others. A desperate desire to please, along with a rather fragile sense of their own being as existing only within the value others place upon them. Once you see the older brother this way, the idea of altruistic motives disappear and we see someone held captive by a set of errant beliefs. Of course, this leads to massive resentment and we see the result of this once the father's love for the younger son is revealed. The older brother was apparently fine with the idea of disapproval of the younger son because this was based upon his behaviour. But once the behaviour is not the thing in focus but the relationship, this is when the problems start, because the older brother wants to be seen through his behaviour and says as such to the father. You remember from verse 29 and verse 30. The father then corrects the older son by renewing the perspective and placing it back firmly in the idea of the living and dead worlds. At the same time revealing the error of the older son and the whole perspective on life. Verse 31, my son, the father said, you're always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Here we see a direct reference to the dead world and how we can return from it. So, this story reveals a pattern. I have seen many times in my work with families. Whenever we see dysfunction in a family, which the Bible teaches us is in every family, the children have to find a way to survive it. In this parable, we see the two main ways that children tend to survive these difficulties in the two brothers' attitudes. In the younger brother, we see the attitude that can be described as everything will work out if I get everything I want. This is the addict or selfish escape. In the older brother, we see the attitude that can be described as everything will work out if everybody else gets what they want. This is the reverse addict or selfish escape. Both are survival strategies and are absolutely typical of a family structure I've seen again and again in my work. I will say more about these attitudes later, but for now I want to acknowledge yet another example of the latest scientific findings showing us what God's Word taught us thousands of years previously. Addiction is the extreme version of a pattern that affects us all. So what happens in the typical addiction scenario? Somebody finally accepts after years of getting worse that they need to do something. That something is usually stop. Drugs or alcohol particularly, but other obsessive behaviours and mental issues can result in the same conclusion. 
The reasoning is understandable. Alcohol is the problem. Therefore, I need to stop and everything will work out. My anger is the problem, so I need to stop being angry. But we must remember that alcohol did not start out as a problem number two. It started as the solution to problem number one. It only became the main problem later as the consequences of choosing an unhealthy strategy emerged, which they always do. How many times have I heard a new client say to me, I have to stop. Of course, um, ultimate aim, our future vision for anyone in this position would be for them to be clean and sober. But to make it our main aim is a huge mistake, similar to making happiness our life goal. So abstinence should be the result of recovery, not the basis for recovery. I believe that making abstinence our aim sets us up for what I call the trap of success and failure. Again, more of that later. Next, we need to understand why we are not naturally finding these better ideas. It's because we have been saturated, literally soaked in what we might call the medical model. Okay, well, that's another <coughs> section of the book, uh, quite a long section, but I'm introducing the, in a sense, the whole biblical approach uh, through the parable of the prodigal. And the next section in the book looks at the medical model and what it is and goes into more detail. But for now, I just want to talk some more about how, what a fantastic story this is and how, like I say, everything we need to know about addiction, recovery, and dysfunction in the family is in this story. And the, the incredible thing about it, <clears throat> to me at least, is that it's not even the main part of the story. You know, you've probably heard hundreds uh, or at least dozens of um, uh, parable of uh, um, sermons and teachings on this parable. And um, <clears throat> they they, they pretty much will have all focused on the Father's love, about how Jesus was talking to the Pharisees and how they would have been horrified to hear this type of story and so on and so forth. All true and all the main point. What we're looking at here uh, in this focus is in fact subtext. It's actually hidden inside the story, which fascinates me even more. So. Again, probably a new take on the story for yourselves. Probably not something you've heard before, but I want you to use it as a way of really confirming that when we look at G Genesis 1.26 and the fact that we are multifaceted, the idea that this is then used in Luke 15. In verse 17, when it says he came to his senses, I can't ask you to study that enough and to understand what on earth are they talking about here, right? And the fact that every decision the son makes before that point is a disaster. Now, I ask this question, don't I? Doesn't it seem like his authentic self that the Bible describes when it says he came to his senses, doesn't it seem almost like surprise? What am I doing here? How many of my father's hired men have food and so on and so forth? It's, it's like he's woken up. 
right? Now, if he's woken up, then he's been asleep. And if he's been asleep, how long has he been asleep for? Now, if we look at this from a neuroscience perspective, well, of course, we're not talking about sleep. <clears throat> and we're not talking about something as obvious and simple as coming to his senses. That's just a way of describing what really happens. What's really happening is much more profound and much more um, uh, complex, in it, if you like. Because what we're saying here from a neuroscience perspective is that there is a part of him which is a fleshly part which has been running his life for quite some time. In other words, we don't know, you know, uh, we don't know how rich the father was. It, it could have taken him years to spend that money. We don't know how long it took. What we know is that all the time he was spending that money, that this part of him was running the show. This greedy, selfish, naive, thoughtless, you know, person, part of him, was running his life. And then what happens? Well, it's like the younger parts, the greedy, selfish parts, it's like they run out of fuel, you know. Basically, as, as, as long as that selfish younger part could get money and could have a life of luxury and comfort and so on and grandiosity, then it would stay active. But it's like it ran out of ideas and stepped back and said, well, hang on, there's no more money anymore. How do we, how do we behave selfishly in this situation? You know, it's a disaster. And then what happens? Well, the, what we call in therapy the core self. Sometimes we can call it the authentic self. Later on you'll hear me call it your Christ consciousness. That is awakened. And through what appears to be something like surprise, actually assesses the situation. But notice how this authentic self assesses the situation, not with any sort of fantasy, not with any sort of um, fear of looking at what really is true. Notice that the idea of facing the music comes along immediately. I will return to my father. But not before a hard look at, uh, you know, a long, cold look at the real situation. What on earth am I doing here? I can't tell you how many people I've worked with who've had these rock bottoms, who have literally one morning or one afternoon said to themselves, this is not what I had planned for myself. How did I get here? And I have to tell you, I'm one of them. This very, very self-same thing happened to me in an October afternoon of 1984, when the last straw broke the camel's back and I couldn't go on another step. Now, at that point, it's like you become willing to face whatever is real, whatever is true, whatever you need to do, you're willing to do it. The amount of, I don't know, shame, embarrassment, whatever it was that he might have had to go through to go back to his father, he was willing to do it. In fact, Jesus, who doesn't waste any words, as far as I can see, um, actually repeats this message. We, we hear it twice within the story, with one small difference. But he basically repeats the story back to his father, and of course he's accepted straight back in. But the real metaphor we're using here, 
as we look at this rather complex idea of what a human being really is, is the idea of the living world and the dead world. What I'm arguing is that the uh, way that younger parts often protect us is to draw us, drag us, or somehow encourage us into what we might call the dead world. And what does this mean? It means isolating, it means, it means withdrawing from real, the challenges of real relationships. Look what he did. He used his money to, uh, to have false or dead relationships with uh, prostitutes and hangers-on and so on. Not one real relationship in the whole experience. But when he had his rock bottom, he was ready to go to his father and to say, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm not actually fit to be called your son. And he was ready to take any punishment, to take any consequences of his behaviour. This is quite amazing, quite wonderful to see. And of course, uh, he's accepted back in. So what can I say about this? I, I, would, I would like you to study it. I think one of the uh, biggest ideas here is that Jesus describes a family, not with four sons or ten sons, as would have been fairly common in those days, you know, big families and so on, but he says two sons. This is very important because he's talking about two extreme positions. And it, it, essentially, he's talking about the two positions that people tend to take in life when things go wrong. And as I say in, in the book that, you know, every working day of my life for the last 40 years, I have seen this pattern. It's everywhere you look and trying to help people out of it um, and notice that both sons have to move in opposite directions to get out of it. Whereas the, um, the younger son has to be more selfless, he has to think of himself less. Well, the older son has to think of himself more. Basically, uh, for them to achieve this balanced position of healthy relationships, they have to move in opposite directions, which is one of the reasons I call it reverse addiction, because there's literally a pattern here where they the two of them form sort of an unhealthy balance. Now, why is the attraction uh, of the dead world so strong? You know, why are so many people drawn into it? Well, just ask yourself this, you know, when you're in real relationships with real people, it's very challenging. Why? Because people change, they, they don't always uh, be honest with you, they don't often say what they, they sometimes don't say, do what they say they're going to do, and so on. It's all very challenging. You have to trust them. Now, if you go into the dead world, you don't have to trust anybody. You've got your bottle, or your drugs, or your behaviour, or whatever it is you do, and it's, you know, dead, but it's consistent, you know. If you're, um, you know, I, I'm one of many people, you know, I used to look at a bottle of alcohol and I used to say, well, it's my only friend. Well, that's about how far you can go with this stuff, you know, because to me, alcohol was consistent. It didn't let me down. It, it never lied to me. Um, it was always there where I put it. 
uh, it didn't change. You know, there was all sorts of advantages to me in this very insecure place. But the courage to join the living world again, as the father says, he was dead, but he's now alive. Well, he's accepting the challenge of the living world. And that is what recovery is all about. That is what growth is all about. That is what progress is all about. That's how we go from the milk to the meat. So there it is. Next time we're going to go on to looking at the medical model in more detail and what that really is. But until then, thanks very much for listening. I hope you got something from it. And until next time, bye for now.